0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to the BeltwayOutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can always use the links that are in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow, so that is always appreciated as well. In this week's show, we're going to do a deep dive on the crisis at the U.S. border, what's happening, why the Biden administration is lying about it, and why the Biden administration is engaging in a cover-up about what is happening on those border towns. In the second segment, we'll do the COVID-19 update, going through all the numbers, highlighting why trends may be upticking right now and why that may be taking place. And then finally, the light item segment this week is a special item about the boat that's been stuck in the Suez Canal. So that's the agenda for this week's show, so we can jump right in. So here's an objective fact. There is an ongoing crisis happening at the United States border with Mexico. There are a ton of migrants arriving every single day, and they're here because of the Biden administration's rhetoric, and the Biden White House is, is more interested in denying that there's a problem and covering things up than they are dealing with the crisis right in front of him. Now, this may sound a little dramatic, but this is, these are the facts that are on the ground. This is what is happening. There is a crisis there. There is a humanitarian disaster there, and the Biden administration shows no real interest in what's happening there overall. Now, I almost did a segment on this last week because all this evidence was there. I've got a column out on it, but I decided to save it till this week because I wanted to really dig into some of this, and if I combined it with what we were covering last week, it just would have been a super long podcast episode. So, the crisis, I didn't think it would go anywhere then. It's not going anywhere now, and Biden's done nothing to fix the problem, which he has exasperated. So, If anything, I mean, I think things are actually getting worse, especially when we start getting to some of these numbers. So we're just going to do what I would normally do with these sorts of things, which is start out by establishing the facts that are there and then working forward from there. Because what too many people do is that they, they start out on the opinion side without establishing what is actually happening. So let's start with what's happening here. So first, we're going to start with the Wall Street Journal here. They are reporting in an exclusive report that the Biden administration anticipates that the number of unaccompanied immigrant children crossing the U.S. border, the southern border, illegally will rise substantially for at least the next two months, according to internal projections. The government estimates that between 18,000 and 22,000 children could cross the border in April. For May, officials are estimating the figure could rise roughly between twenty-one to 25,000. Border Patrol p- officials say that they expect taking more than 16,000 children into custody this month, so that is in March. A record for any month at the border since at least 2010, according to government data. In February, the figure was above 9,300, which was up from 5,700 in January. So these are very big climbs here. The journal continues. The growing number of children crossing the border alone in recent months has overwhelmed government resources. Under immigration law, children can't quickly be deported and instead are transferred to a network of government shelters where they stay while officials look for suitable adult sponsors who can care for them until their immigration cases are resolved. As of Thursday, this past week, the Biden administration reported more than 18,000 immigrant children in its custody, with roughly 12,500 of them in government child child shelters. Another 5,500 are being held in temporary Border Patrol holding facilities waiting to be transferred to shelters. A senior Border Patrol official told reporters Friday morning that the number of children has continued to rise in recent days and that children were routinely being held in the agency stations and tent facilities for an average of about 90 hours, but that some had been there for as long as 100 hours. The longest they are allowed to stay there by law is 72 hours. The official said children were staying in Border Patrol facilities longer than is allowed because the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee, resettlement doesn't have enough space to house them all. Now Axios adds on top of this. So the journal reports says that administration officials are expecting these numbers to go up for the next two months. Axios, and their reporting, says that the surge of unaccompanied migrant children is expecting to continue and rise for the next seven months. So it may not be surging quite as high, but it will be a very slow and gradual trend down. We are going to see very high numbers for the next seven months. Now, what we started out here covering are the numbers of unaccompanied immigrant children. So these are the quote unquote kids in cages. if you remember the 2019 version of the story when it came up, these were the kids in cages. they were all by themselves. they were talking about family separation and so on and so forth. These are children with no one with them. That's the only thing these numbers cover. If you if you, if, if you break that out and focus on other things, so for instance things like families and individual migrants, the numbers go up even more. The Wall Street Journal had a separate report in where they said parents with young children have been come, have been crossing into the US from Mexico by the thousands each day, straining governmental resources and the patience of some local residents and officials in the Rio Grande Valley in towns like McAllen. Families are being released at a rapid clip into border communities which need to test them for COVID-19 and quarantine them if necessary. All along the border, and in some cities a little farther away, local officials are getting calls. Migrants are about to be dropped off at bus stations or airports, at migrant shelters, and even occasionally hotels. There was a different story here where the Biden administration was renting out hundreds if not thousands of hotel rooms for these migrant families so border patrol facilities are so overcrowded that in recent days agents have started temporarily holding hundreds of families under a bridge near mcallen texas where migrants detained overnight are sleeping on the dirt under a bridge Though the record numbers of unaccompanied children at the border have captured the greatest public attention thus far, they make up the smallest portion of migrants crossing the border right now. The majority are men looking for work, and they are being swiftly turned around by the Border Patrol. In the meantime, the number of migrant families heading to the border is swelling, threatening to become a humanitarian crisis. So again, everyone focuses on children, which is, of course, understandable because they're there alone, which is nothing that you ever want to see. But there are also these families who are also part of the humanitarian crisis. And as you can see from some of these ports, some of them are sleeping under bridges because they literally have nowhere to put any of them. So this surge is actively happening. It's beating all previous surges, and it's happening right now. And again, the reason I started out saying it's because of the Biden administration is because... These migrants are saying that they're there because of the Biden administration. What they've said and what they felt that the Biden administration was promising, because they didn't want to come close to the border because of the Trump's Trump era's policies. They didn't want to deal with it, even though there was that surge. Then the Trump administration was able to use current congressional law to get a handle on things, and then, of course, with the virus, you saw these numbers drop. So. What you're seeing now is a true surge and there was a report in the Daily Beast from last week where they were interviewing some of these immigrant families and some of the individuals and asking them why they decided to come now. So this is what the Daily Beast reported and this is no conservative outlet. This is a, you know, a liberal outlet. They said hundreds of families mostly from Central America are arriving At the border, expecting to be welcomed into Joe Biden's America, only to be shocked by what they see as a betrayal and sent back to where they came from, according to migrants and shelter managers interviewed by the Daily Beast. During the campaign, candidate Biden promised to sweep away some of President Donald Trump's harshest border policies and manipulate a, quote, humane approach. The reality of Biden's immigration policy is slowly becoming clear, and it's not what thousands of vulnerable migrants expected nor needed. In an interview with ABC News on Tuesday, Biden finally said it out loud in a message designed to discourage those who are desperate to escape their countries. Quote, don't come over. And then that beast report goes on to interview individuals. I'm not going to get into all of that uh, because it's a longer uh, piece. I've got it linked in the show notes if you want to read it yourself. But they're not the only ones. I mean, in that piece, they're quoting ABC. If you get into some of the other news outlets, they are also reporting some of this if they're able to interview them. And I do emphasize this, you know, if they had a chance to interview them, because the other side of this story, aside from this humanitarian crisis that is growing from all the numbers of people who are coming in, the other side is what the Biden administration is doing here, and that is covering up what's happening here. Because most of these news agencies— are not able to talk to some of these migrants or to border patrol officers. So there was a viral video over the weekend from Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. He and a group of senators and representatives went down to these border facilities to see how people were being treated. He then put up a video, and you're only going to be able to see the audio here, which is all you really need to hear here, because the video in this, there's this woman from the Biden administration who is standing in front of Cruz and his camera trying to block his view. And she keeps repeating the same line over and over again, and you will hear that in this clip. But meanwhile... If you look past her, it looks like all the other shots we've seen from these migrant facilities. There's more than 50 kids crammed into this small space. They're all under emergency blankets, crammed in really as tight as sardines. And and so they're all in that room, all wrapped off from the senators, representatives. And then you have this Biden administration official trying to block the access of this video. And Ted Cruz ended up sending up a letter to the administration demanding to, na- to you know. For them to explain why they were trying to block videos and pictures being taken by these congressional members. So I'm gonna play the clip here and let you hear this argument. Uh, It's pretty short here but you'll get an idea of what's happening.
1: Please give dignity to the people. Please give dignity to the people.
0: So you work for the commissioner,
1: your senior advisor. You were hired two weeks ago, and you're instructed to ask us to not have any pictures taken here. Please respect the people, the, the rules. Because the political leadership at DHS does not want the American people to know it. Please respect the rules, You keep sir. standing in, in front of the pictures. So Please you don't want the, the pictures rules. taken. The rules are arbitrary, and Please they're designed the to keep the American the people, people in the the people dignity and respect. That's all we ask. Dignity well, no, it's and not. Respect. You're asking, is this please, dignity and respect? Look at these people. There, dignity there's a pandemic. And respect to the people? Let, let me ask, ask you, there, there's a you, pandemic. I respectfully ask you, sir. There is a pandemic. Is this respecting the rights of these I kids? Ask you, are respect you, respecting the, the rights of these this kids? This is not a zoo, sir. Yes. Please don't treat the people. You're right, and this is a such. dangerous place. Please don't treat the people. like And your people policies, like this. That's uh, all unfortunately, you, are trying to hide them. I understand you are instructed. When 18 I senators ask you came down please here. Please respect the people. Give them dignity respect and respect. I respect them and I want to fix this situation. We all want and to fix it, we don't want this situation. The administration you working for is responsible for these conditions. Please respect the people with dignity say, and respect. And sir. I ask you to respect the, the people as well. This is I am respecting not respect. you. I am respecting is, the people. This is not respect.
0: So that's kind of a painful audio clip to listen to there. And you know, and I play it to illustrate that point that the Biden administration is really muzzling anyone with any kind of information to come out here. and And I also feel sorry for that woman who's only been there for two weeks, and she's been sent there with instructions from the White House here, or some of the other commissioners that they've hired to prevent any videos or pictures being taken, and they're using this line, which is really annoying here, that doing this sort of thing of, of taking these videos, taking these pictures, and bringing it to the public's eyes disrespects these people, which is really rich coming from Democrats who spent the summer of 2019 going to these facilities and making them photo op opportunities. I mean, the most viral clip was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in her white suit, pretending like she's got her hand up against the, the wire fence, uh, the chain link fence, and crying. That was the viral picture. They used these people, they used these facilities as viral photo ops. Never did anything in Congress, by the way. They just used it as a photo op and a political moment. And now they're trying to prevent the same thing from happening. They're trying to prevent not only those kinds of events from happening, but from any information at all from coming out. Because Axios, in one of their reports... They said, quote, the Biden administration has restricted media coverage at housing facilities. Images like these offer a rare window into conditions. And what had happened here with Axios Scoop report is that they had they had a Democratic senator who was there and took pictures and then gave them over to Axios to say this is what is happening. And the senator was a Democrat and they were livid about what was happening here, wanting change. And so they sent these pictures out. Well, the Biden administration is trying to prevent all of that. And there, that's not the only thing that's happening here. The Associated Press, they reported that the Biden administration is blocking access for lawyers to meet with migrants and serve as a whistleblower for any bad conditions. They haven't been granted any access. There have been reporters on Twitter saying we were normally granted access under all previous administrations, including the Trump administration, take pictures of these facilities to report what's happening here. They are being blocked now. The Biden administration is blocking access. So again, I'm reporting mainstream outlets here to give you sort of this. This is what they're all saying. This is not a, you know, a spun way of reading it because this next one comes from NBC News. And that is probably the most damning report here. You heard that clip from Ted Cruz. This was before that clip, and NBC News said that they had learned that there was a, quote, gag order on all employees at the border. So here's that report from NBC News. So remember that clip from Ted Cruz. This is not just some spin that he's ginning up here. This is what NBC News reported before that clip. They said, the Biden administration is restricting information Border Patrol agents and sector chiefs can share with the media as a surge of migrants tests the agency's capacity at the southern border, according to four current and two former customs and border protection officials. So you got four current and two former. So, you got a pretty good idea of what's happening here. The officials say the restrictions are seen as an unofficial quote gag order and are often referred to that way among colleagues. The officials requested anonymity because they are not authorized to speak with the media about the topic. Border patrol officials have been told to deny all media crests for ride-alongs with agents along the southern land border. Local press officers are instructed to send all information queries, even from local media there in Texas, you know, Arizona, all those places, they're supposed to send them to the press office in Washington for approval and those responsible for cultivating data about the number of migrants in custody have been reminded not to share the information with anyone to prevent leaks, the officials said. Multiple news organizations, including NBC News, have requested access to or photos from inside the overcrowded border processing facilities holding unaccompanied migrant children. They have been denied. The DHS press office released one photo late Tuesday of a mother and a child undergoing a health screening inside a border facility, but no wider shots to show conditions or sleeping arrangements. At the height of the Trump administration's child separation policy in June of 2018, it allowed media to tour facilities where separated children were being held. The new restrictions have been passed down verbally, not through an official memo, the officials said. The unofficial policy has led to some agents at the border to release videos that show mass arrests and surges of migrants without permission from Washington, two officials said. So they've got six officials, both uh, four current and two pre- from the previous administration, all saying the same thing here. That there's a gag order. And you see, you know, you have members of Congress there, and the Biden administration hires on a new person and tells them not to take any pictures, show any videos. This is not what's happened in any previous administration. This is not what's happened with press access in any previous res- uh, res- administration. Lawyers are being denied access. This is the definition of a cover-up, where they're not letting you find out. Any, any pictures that you've seen, any videos that you've seen, these were sent out without their permission, and they did not want you to know about any of this. And there have been a few uh, outlets that have seen, had these pictures out. Axios is one of them. You have this video from Ted Cruz. You have some unauthorized stuff that's being linked out. So if you see those, know that these are things that the government is trying to prevent you from seeing. And on top of that, this is the cherry on top of everything that we covered so far, the Biden administration has continued to steadfastly deny there's any crisis on the border at all. Which at this point is just a flat-out, straight-up lie. I mean, you can see the numbers yourself. You can see the overcrowding in all these facilities. All the officials who are speaking off the record are saying the same thing. They're overwhelmed. They don't have enough resources. There's no end in sight. Families are sleeping under bridges in the dirt. What more do you need to consider this a crisis of some kind. And the White House just has its head in the sand here. They're not saying anything, they're not doing anything, and they've got a gag, an unofficial gag order, and they're preventing members of Congress from videotaping the facility when they can. In this case, Ted Cruz just disobeyed the rules and went ahead and uploaded it, which if you think back to 2018 and 2019, you know Democrats would have done the same. Just think for a second of what the press reports would be if this is what the Trump administration was doing. Imagine if the Trump administration was denying lawyers access to these migrants, was denying any access to the media to these facilities, no photographers, no videographers. If he was trying to blind members of Congress from being able to see some of this stuff by preventing them from videotaping, and just imagine if the Trump administration was doing all this. What would the outcry be? I can imagine it pretty clearly they're trying to over. They're trying to cover up their racism. That would be the talking point of the day. That this was a this was authoritarianism run amok, and it was a sign of their racism. Where are the people now? Where are the Democrats who were so loud in 2018 and 2019 who made this a key part? did all those photo ops. Remember, this is the kids in cages story. This is that story. It is still happening. Those, you know, quote unquote cages are still there. These are tent facilities. And, complicating matters even more, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is pandemic. The same thing is happening on their watch. Migrants are saying they're there because of Biden and his policies, and we're getting nothing here. Seriously, I I tell you right now, if if you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your liberal friends were using, where are they right now? Where are they? Because I know I'm a pretty I mean I've got a podcast here, I'm political, I've got a newsletter, I write columns. I'm a pretty political person. I've got a diverse group of friends. I went to law school. There are people of all varieties that you meet along the way from law school and college. And you would think, just based on my own social media feeds, that some of the left-leaning people, and some of these are literal card carrying members of the Democratic Party, will vote for anybody over there, have were very loud throughout the all the years of the Biden administration, you would think some of these people had deleted their accounts. Some of them posted daily about what was happening on the border, and I couldn't find them if you asked me to right now. They are stone cold silent. And then, of course, on top of all this, you had Joe Biden, who held a press conference in which he read off all his answers, took questions from pre-picked friendly journalists, and couldn't provide an answer for anything that his administration is doing. So that's what we've got here. We've got an administration that refuses to face the music on what's happening and refuses to take responsibility for what is happening here. Because the facts say, they they absolutely say here that this is a crisis. Now you can say, well, it's not a crisis. It's just the Biden administration that's handling things. Listen, you could call this whatever you want. People are sleeping under bridges. You've got unaccompanied children packed in these tents camps when like sardines. I mean, you talk about the six-foot rule, and you see all these people freaking out every day about masks and other things. Well, these kids are you know, elbow to elbow in these tent facilities with an emergency blanket in the middle of a pandemic. Now, how do you think that works from a public health policy standpoint? This fundamentally is not... I mean, you've got these teachers unions out here who refuse to reopen schools, which are proven to be safe because they are scared of what happens here. And these same Democrats are fine, apparently, with kids being packed into these facilities elbow to elbow in a pandemic. I mean, I don't don't know what else to say here. This is, it's beyond hypocrisy here. It's, It's beyond that. Democrats fundamentally do not care about immigration or the border on this. And Biden seems absolutely gobsmacked that migrants believed his campaign promises and are surging to the border, believing that he'll just he'll just let them in. I mean, and that's not happening. And you know, in that Daily Beast report, they're saying that you know they feel betrayed, and that's their end of it. And Biden doesn't have any answers. He's not providing any solutions. Democrats in Congress are being caught flat-footed and are not rushing out to provide any answers. There's no, you know, they're not doing anything here. They just all wish this would just go. Away, You know, you pretend that it doesn't exist. But it's continuing to grow, and it's continuing to be a thing here. And when it comes to immigration, and the Democratic Party is pretty similar on immigration to the way Republicans are on the issue of health care. Democrats can tell you what they are against when it comes to immigration, but they don't have a comprehensive plan on how to fix both border security and the immigration problem overall. Interestingly enough, one of the staunchest hawks on immigration on the Democratic side was Bernie Sanders back in the day because he knew, and this is what any good socialist of his ilk knows, if you're going to give a lot of free services to all of your citizens, in order to support that over time, you have to restrict immigration in order to prevent massive overcosts from coming. Because otherwise, you just have people who flood into the country and overwhelm your system. So in order to do that, and you find this over in Europe too, all those you know, so-called progressive countries, a lot of those countries are super racist. Not even joking on that. They don't allow much immigration at all, and the kind that they do is very, very, very restrictive. So, yeah, Democrats don't have an answer. And, and, you know, it's the same way for Republicans. Republicans can tell you what they are against when it comes to health care. No single payer, no anything like that. They don't want to deal with those sorts of things. But they can't actually give you a comprehensive plan of what they want to do. That's the other problem here. They don't actually have a plan on what to do. There are ideas on the Republican side, and I've read them. I've pushed some of them. But there's no comprehensive way of saying, hey, we need to fix healthcare this way and do X, Y, and Z. And so they just tried to, you know, whenever it comes up, you just oppose what the Democrats are doing and you go from there because you don't have a plan yourself. Well, that that's all Democrats are on this. 2018, 2019, that was really the first time Democrats had showed any interest on the border or immigration in practically decades. It's not an issue they want to deal with. They don't have any solutions for it. And right now, they have a crisis on their hand on that front, and they've got to handle it. This is not something that you can just hide your head in the sand and pretend goes away. These are people who actively are in our care and require our help, and you can't just treat them like this. That's wrong by itself. That's a humanitarian disaster. And then on the flip side, you've actually got to enforce the laws that Congress has passed here, which is what the Trump administration eventually started doing in you know, the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. That's what helped resolve a lot of these issues on the border. They just used the laws that Congress had given them. Biden's got to do the same thing if he wants to clear up these facilities and prevent this disaster. But I doubt he's going to do that because they're just hiding their heads in the sand. Because whatever you believe on immigration or the migrants, whether they should be here, whether they should not, at the end of the day, as a human being, you have to believe that these are not the conditions these people should be in. This is not how they should be treated. That is all fundamentally wrong. And that's what the Biden administration is doing right now. They are mistreating these immigrants, and congressional Republicans need to hold the White House's feet to the fire on this topic and keep up the flames on them because, very clearly by the data, we know this is going to continue going for the next two months. The Biden administration is just sort kind of banking on people forgetting about this and it not being an issue, and they can just kind of shove it under the rug. But we know by the numbers this is going to get worse over the next two months at least, and it's going to be an ongoing issue for the next seven months, according to Axios. You've got to have a plan here and you've got to start fixing things. I don't see that in the Biden administration. I just see people trying to deny access and, you know, claim that they're worried about the dignity of the people, which is something they've never cared about in any point of the past. They're scared of being called on the carpet here for their bad decisions and how they have messed up this entire situation. That's what's happening here. So I'll link to all these pieces if you want to read through them yourself, feel free. That's all for this segment, though. Up next, we'll do the COVID-19 update. So this week on the COVID-19 update, it looks like the numbers suggest that we're heading towards another uptick in both the trend lines and the overall numbers overall. Although we're going to get to, I think this is only happening regionally. It's not a nationwide thing like what we saw happen over the winter. But we'll get to all that. We're going to cover the numbers, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about here. So starting out, testing is basically unchanged from last week. It sits at 1.42 million. Uh, Last week, we had 1.45 million, which is basically the same as the previous week. So 1.42 and 1.45, that's a ton of testing. It looks like we've kind of settled overall into around the 1.4, 1.45 range on testing, which is pretty good. It's down from the peak of 2.1 million back in the winter, but as we're watching vaccinations go up, this seems to be the new normal here, at least it has been for the last three weeks. The positivity rate on those tests, and that's the number of tests coming back as positive, has ticked up. The number this week is a little over 4%. It is 4.03% to be exact. We'd bottled out, bottomed out at around 3.58% two weeks ago, and appeared to be on a slight uptrend right now. So, you know last week, I said the number I'll be looking at is on this was if we drifted above four percent and we have just barely, but it is above four percent, which suggests potentially an uptrend here because it we're still around all time lows and all time lows are in the four to three and a half percent range, so this is. I'm saying this is an uptick in the trends, but we're still at all time lows here, so that is a good thing. But it's the trend line here that you have to sort of keep an eye on, because this can get get out of hand in in a real quick way. So, you know, with that slight tick up, the number of new cases overall has gone up too, and you know, that makes sense with the positivity rate. This week, the seven day average on new cases each day is 57,000, which is up from 51,000 two weeks ago and up from 53,54,000 last week. So again, these are low numbers. They're within range of either, each other. But it again, it's the trend line that, that we're watching here. It's this slight tick up. And you know, any of these types of, of wiggles in the data, you, you have to look at them because you're trying to find these trend lines and get ahead of them. The one number out of these, all these numbers that continues to drop are the hospitalizations and the ICU numbers within those hospitalizations. So the number of current hospitalizations sits at 35,601. That is down from 35,882 last week. So we've dropped around 200 hospitalization patients here. So we're decreasing, but it's much slower than at any time before. And it is a drop, though. (laughs) That is the good thing here. It is a drop. That is something that you want to see on a national level. But, with cases going up, you would kind of expect that your hospitalizations could be impacted here as well the i c u s as part of that you know that overall hospitalization number those are dropping two overall right now the number of people in i c u care is six thousand eight hundred and twelve that is versus seven thousand seven hundred seven seven thousand and seventy seven from last week so that's a drop of around two hundred and fifty so sixty eight twelve is your i c u number that is again it's a good thing to see these dropping it is dropping lower than before i mean slower than before, uh, but we're still edging down from the previous week's numbers so as long you know if we see cases tick up here, but we don't see hospitalizations and i c u cases match that that is a very good sign so that's kind of what I'm watching with here. You can have cases go up, but if people aren't getting severe versions of this or any given in the hospital then you're fine. That's what you got to watch here. The concerning thing here is that deaths have concerningly jumped up a little bit. Last week, the seven-day average on deaths was 946. This week, that average has climbed to 993. So we're still below a 1,000, but we have gone up just a little bit. So that's something that we have to keep an eye on. So those are all the numbers they suggest a slight uptick both in positivity and cases potentially in deaths as well. so before hitting the vaccine numbers, let's just talk about what's happening here and why we're seeing these because these numbers are suggesting an uptrend, although we're going to know for sure over this next week. Last week, there was a small evidence of an uptrend, but it was within the parameters of previous weeks, so you know I was just kind of saying you know we've but everything last week I was kind of pointing to is saying it was pretty much unchanged. And you could almost say that with this, it's just there's these slightly concerning things that show the slightest trend, uptrends here. And with this virus, you've got to be on top of these sorts of things. It could be that we've kind of bottomed out and that we're bouncing up a little bit to hit sort of a new flat line here. It could be we're heading in a new upswing. We're going to know really over the next, this next week in particular, because that would, you know, one to two weeks of information is helpful. Three weeks is where you start developing trend lines. We don't have a trend line yet in a lot of this stuff. We we are looking for one over this next week. So what happens over the next week is sort of important to telling us where things are headed. So you may be saying, well, you know, let's assume it is an uptrend. Why would this be happening? That's a great question, and there's no good answers here. Uh, my theory on why you could be seeing this is borne out by the numbers a little bit. So this is not a national uptick in the in these numbers. This is not happening everywhere. It's very regional where these numbers are happening. So, we're seeing upticks in cases and even some hospitalizations. You know, so when I talk about hospitalizations dropping, hospitalizations dropped in every single state in the union including DC except for four. So there are four states where they went up. So, this is not spread out evenly here. And the upswing that we're seeing in these numbers, both in cases, positivity rate, hospitalizations, that's happening in the upper Midwest, places like Michigan and Minnesota, and also in the Northeast, which includes your New Jersey's, your New York's, your Connecticut's, and other places like that. I don't think they're including New York quite yet in these numbers, but everywhere around New York is included in these uptick trends. So those places are trending up. The middle of the country is sort of unchanged. They're just kind of flat right now. But across the south and the west, numbers continue to go down. Now, there's probably some seasonality at play here. I don't think you can ignore the fact that this thing, this virus, swings up and down depending on the season. Last spring, it was really bad in the upper Midwest and Northeast. When we were in this, you know, March and April, that is when it was worst up there, and then when we got into the, the late spring and summer, you saw a surge happen across the southern states. And all last year, we, no one really had any, any, any good explanations for why this happened. Some of it is explained by where people are. So across the south and the west, weather is super nice right now. People are not indoors. And if you're in group activities outdoors, the virus just doesn't spread as quickly if you're up in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, people are more likely to be indoors. Even, when, you know, even if you have people traveling and moving around, they're going to be doing it indoors, which is where this thing is going to spread more easily. So that could be explaining some of the seasonality at play here. It could just be a factor of some, you know, something that happens up there at this time that allows it to spread easier. We really don't know. The other thing, though, when you're looking at these things, is that is the issue of variance. So we no longer are just dealing with, Basically, a mainstream version of COVID nineteen. We have all these variants out there. New York has had its own particular version of this, which is a far more viral version. The upper Midwest has encountered the Brazilian version of the virus, and there are other variants at play here. And so, if you have places in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest, places where it can spread more easily, these variants are probably going to be the the number one factor for why it is spreading. We don't have really good data on which variants are at play because it depends on which of the tests that are positive that we end up sequencing, and we do not sequence all these tests to find out which form of the virus is at play. So we know when we start seeing certain variants pop up, we know it has to be more widespread than what we have in the data just because we are limited by the types of ways and the number of sequencing data that we have on finding out which virus is in which region of the country. So we just are assuming that it's far more widespread than it is. So the thing about these variants is that they are far more viral and far more lethal. In fact, if you look at the Brazil variant in particular, if you look at Brazil's numbers right now, there is a huge upswing both in the number of cases and the number of deaths happening in Brazil. They are absolutely getting hammered by this virus right now in South America. And if you have any kind of travel between those two, you know, Brazil and these different states where people are more likely to be indoors, you're probably going to see some spread here. Now, I want to do a com- for comparison here. So the shutdowns that we've had, the use of masks, hand washing, social distancing, all those kinds of things, people were doing that throughout the, the fall and winter when we had this huge upsurge. So, you know, we had all those cases of COVID-19. But happening alongside that, we had basically no major cases of the flu or any other kind of virus going around. It was COVID-19 and basically nothing else. And you know, you could look at the data on this, but another way to prove this is to look at the economic data. So, Rite Aid, a pharmacy co- company, they were reporting their earnings for, you know, the winter quarter, and they reported lost earnings. And the reason that they had, they had lower than expected earnings is because over the winter, the cold and flu products that they normally sell during that period of time just flat out didn't sell because people didn't need them. They weren't getting the cold and flu. Those things weren't selling like they were in previous years. And so I'd lost money during this period of time because a, a key product for them didn't fly off the shelves. The number of flu cases plummeted this year. And so when you, when you factor that in, what you see is that these measures, they were working. They were preventing these other diseases, which are less viral than COVID-19, far less viral. And even with things that are hammering these other diseases, COVID-19 still spread. And it spread like a wildfire over the winter. I mean, it just went everywhere. So that should tell you how much more viral COVID-19 is, just the base version of it, versus these other diseases. And that's regular COVID. These variants are more viral than regular COVID. So the UK, Brazil, and others, I've seen some estimates that say that's, I know the UK variant in particular was estimated to be around 40% more viral than regular COVID and maybe a percentage or two more lethal. They were. They, I've not seen a good study that shows exactly how lethal some of these variants are. They just, you know, if you're creating more cases, you might end up just having more fatalities from it. So we're at the end of March now. And earlier in January and February, I did a few episodes on these variants, talking about them talking about why people were in on them, what was the issue with them, where they were coming from, so on and so forth. And one of the, the the expert predictions that I read off for those episodes was that they expected by March or April that we would have these variants taking over as the dominant strains. So potentially, and this is the, this is the only explanation that I have for what's happening aside from seasonality, is that we, we're more likely dealing with the fact that these variants are spreading in these specific key areas and they're spreading more quickly and more thoroughly than normal COVID did in these same situations. That would be my theory. I think you, because we don't know as much about these variants and know about where they are, my assumption would be that you have to assume you're dealing with them at this point. So you have to assume that you're dealing with a more potent version of the virus and a more viral version of COVID-19. And so if you make that assumption, that is why it is vitally important that you get vaccinated and get the immunity that those vaccines offer, because even if they're not 100% in preventing you from getting one of these variants, all studies so far have shown that the vaccines prevent nearly 100% of severe cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. They give you that quick cheat code access to getting immunity to whatever version you have faster and so the longer that you end up putting off getting a vaccine, the more likely that it is you're going to be exposed to one of these more dangerous strains of COVID-19. Now fortunately, I believe with these vaccines, I think we're going to be able to produce booster versions of these that are going to be able to tackle these vaccine I mean these variants. There's also some preliminary data that suggests that this version of COVID-19 can only adapt so far, and so we were able to get a sort of a comprehensive version of immunity against this. That's something that's really nice too. That there's the potential that the variants that we're seeing right now—they're all sort of of evolving in the same way—and so if we take that avenue away from the virus we might have a comprehensive way of getting immunity out to everyone. So that is the g- potential good news there. That is all very preliminary, though, and I think you have to work on the assumption that this you're dealing with a more dangerous version of COVID-19 than existed in the past spring, which is why vaccines are more important than ever. So that brings me to the vaccination numbers, and on that point, these are the brightest spots and all the data that you look at each week. I love these numbers. I look at them almost daily. Uh, As of this week, we have administered a total of 143 million vaccination doses across the United States. 51.6 million people are now fully vaccinated with either two doses of Moderna and Pfizer or one dose of Johnson & Johnson. 93.7 million people are partially vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna. So out of the total population, 28.2% 28.2% of the population has had at least one dose. 15.5% of the population is now fully vaccinated. Now, Again, I, as I was pointing out over the last few weeks, you, you don't want to focus in too much on the total population because we're only vaccinating the adult population. So that's going to tell you exactly where we are in that process. So if you're looking at only those over the age of 18... of the adult population has had at least one dose of the vaccine. 20% of the adult population is fully vaccinated. So one in five Americans in the adult population are now fully vaccinated. If we focus in only on the most vulnerable in the population, so that's the CDC defines those as 65 and up, 72.4% of those people have had at least one dose of the vaccine. 48.4% 48.4% are fully vaccinated. So almost half of the 65 and up population is fully vaccinated. That is a very important number. We're going to cross that 50% mark more than likely this next week. Given we're so close, I would fully expect us to cross it probably Wednesday or Thursday. There's usually some downtime in the data on Monday and Tuesday. So you have to wait till Wednesday to see if some real data start coming in. So... That That is the good news here. We're seeing more and more people get vaccinated. We're seeing more and more of the key demographics get vaccinated. The last three days, we've had a minimum of 3 billion people vaccinated each day. So that is the magic number there. The seven-day average is sitting right at 2.71 million a day, so we're getting closer and closer to that number of 3 million a day. That is the number that I mentioned back in the winter that we needed to hit and that we were more than likely going to be aiming for. 3 million people a day is our true goal. I know Joe Biden came out and said, oh, you know, by the first 100 days, now we're going to do double that. We're going to do 200 million. We're already going to do that. We're at 143 million right now. We're going to clear that goal very easily. That is why Joe Biden said it. He is only... Everything he announces on vaccines are things that were already happening under operation. Warp speed, he's done very little here to help speed things up. And so he's just banking on what he can say that he can deliver deliver because that's already going to happen. The real goal for America is 3 million doses a day. If you vaccinate 3 million people a day, it's like vaccinating nearly 1% of the total population each and every day. That's what you're looking at there. And that's why you want to do it, especially since we're only vaccinating adults at this point. You're 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 really hitting about 1% of the population if you're able to pull that off. So that is a really, really good number, and that is why I keep saying that is our true goal that we need to hit. We're not there yet, but we are getting closer, and hitting 3 million three days in a row is a very good sign that we're on our way to doing that. Along with that, the vaccine supply is continuing to go up. And hopefully with that, we haven't seen it quite yet, but hopefully as the, the deliveries and the number of vaccinations that we're producing every day continue to go up, hopefully the usage rate of those vast vaccines goes up as well. If that happens, we're going to get everyone vaccinated in record time, much faster than even the Biden administration thinks. So compared to the case numbers, all the vaccination numbers are good and trending up. Uh, I joined the group of those who've been vaccinated this week. I got my first dose of the Pfizer vaccination on Wednesday. My parents both have Moderna and my sister has Pfizer, so everybody's doing fine. We all just experience varying degrees of arm pain, uh, but otherwise, our bodies are now busy dealing with spike proteins now from those vaccinations, which is a very good thing. Uh, most states now have a timeline where they're opening up the vaccine to everyone in the next few weeks. I know in Tennessee, where I am, the date on that is April 5th. I've heard other states marking that as their same date. So some states are either before or after this date, but generally everyone is opening up their supply because, the, one, the supply is so plentiful, and also there is an urgency here to now just to move from targeted vaccinations to getting vaccines in as many arms as possible. Um so that that's all the great news there. And interestingly enough, on the states with no plan, the last time I checked, New York was one of the like last one or two states that did not have a plan for opening up to the rest of their population, which is really interesting on that part. For all of, you know, his bloviating, Cuomo is pretty late to the to the ball on here compared to literally every other state in the union. So remember, though, whatever vaccine you get, make sure to continue wearing a mask and being smart until you're fully vaccinated. You know, this includes the Johnson and Johnson because you have to give your body time to build up that immunity. E, you know, with the Johnson and Johnson shot, it takes about four weeks before they started showing similar numbers to Pfizer and Moderna. The the sixty six percent or sixty seven percent of, of effic- efficacy that they they mention that is after two weeks with the one Johnson and Johnson shot. You really want to get them out to about four weeks before you start feeling that you're closer to the Pfizer and Moderna numbers after two vaccines. I know from Israeli studies the Pfizer shot is about 93 to 95 percent effective seven days after the second shot. If you wait out into the two week period after that second shot, the the efficacy of it jumps to around 99.3 percent. That's an outstanding number there. So you're really, if you give your the human body time to build that immunity up. You, you're you going to do really well here. That is pretty much the sum total of this. And even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they looked at people after two months, which that sounds like a long time after one shot, but two months is about what you're talking about after you've had a full range of doses of both Moderna or Pfizer, because after the Pfizer, it's about a three-week wait there. After Moderna, it's about a four-week wait. And by the time you add in another Week or two after getting that second dose, you're about in the two-week range there. I mean, you're in the two-month range there. So it's about the same time frame for both sets here. And with Johnson & Johnson, after they after you hit that two-month mark, if I'm remembering right, you didn't see uh, any indications of the virus. They didn't find any positive uh, cases of the virus. There were no hospitalizations, no deaths, no anything there. So the more time you give your body to build up that immunity, the better... I think the the frame of reference that you need to have is about a two-month block there where you're, you're really giving your body the best chance to build it up. So remember that as you're getting these, all these states are opening up. That's a fantastic thing. I'm advising everyone to go get it. I don't think it matters which one you get. I think they're all good. I, would, I really want AstraZeneca added into the mix as well. But with the three that we have, they're all great, fantastic, and I'm advising everyone to go out and get it. One last thing here, if you get a chance, you should go watch a 60-minute segment that they did late Sunday on the origins of COVID-19. They interview people surrounding the WHO's investigation and the upcoming report that the WHO is going to release on the origins of COVID-19, and... I mean, you you would know this. I mean, if you're if you're listening to me, more than likely you, you're on the same side of, of, with me on this and that. It's China's hands are all over this report. You would have assumed that coming in. The sixty Minutes interview will really lay that out for you, because the debate is where this came from. Did it come from the wet markets where people are eating things like bats, or did this thing somehow get released from a laboratory? I think if you watch that sixty Minutes segment you're going to come away with the the impression that this came from the lab. And I don't think they're entirely wrong on that. And the reason I don't think they're entirely wrong on that is because you have to look at China's actions. China is actively whitewashing anything surrounding this report. They have destroyed evidence. They have silenced scientists. They have prevented access to the WHO and American investigators from Finding out anything. They've blocked access. I mean, in this case, the WHO team, they had four weeks to do their thing. Two of those weeks were spent in a hotel where they were quarantining, waiting to go do anything. They were given a grand total of three hours with the lab and the people in it. And when they interviewed people related to that lab, Chinese officials were sitting in the room looking over their shoulder. Now, The WHO official that they bring to talk this out says, oh, you know, this isn't a bad idea. He doesn't believe in the lab of thing at all, but this is also a guy that has a long relationship with China, and if you look at how the WHO has kowtowed to China, and I'm putting that kindly because one of my big pieces at the dispatch was going through why we should stop funding the WHO, and it was on this front. I just think the WHO and the people in it are compromised, and you cannot trust them, particularly when the thing here with the... So it looks like the WHO and their people are headed towards saying that this came from a wet market. The guy admits in the interview they have no evidence that it came from the wet market, but that looks like that's what they're going to say just because they don't want to blame China for anything. They want to say, oh, it's just these dumb farmers and the people who bought these bad animals. It's not the if it's a lab, it wouldn't be the first time that China has released something from a lab. If I'm remembering correctly, that is where we think a previous version of SARS came out. So China's hands are all over this. I don't think you can trust this. The the theory that this originated from a lab, whether accidental or on purpose, I tend to err on the side that it was an accident because that's typically what's happened in the past, and China has lax standards in that regard. The theory that this all originated in a lab in Wuhan is not debunked. That is what so many people in the in the media, the national liberal media, particularly the New York Times, Washington Post, and others, they keep saying that this theory is debunked. And when it comes to this, I, I'm sort of ambivalent. I can see it being, you know, the wet market or being the lab, but China's actions sort of tell you that you need to look at the lab theory here a lot closer than, the, than what it's getting here. And the left is super committed to this lab not being the cause, and it makes utterly no sense. I mean, the only the only reason you could you could cook up that they're so committed to this is because you had Trump and people like Senator Tom Cotton and people like him saying, "Well, they think the lab is really important here. We need to investigate it." And the only reason that I can come up with that that they're so against this is that a Republican has said it, and that is a really dumb thing to say here because China is involved here and. You know, just in my own circle of friends, where you have people who are liberal, progressive, those who are who understand China, and because that are China hawks, because they support America, they look at this lab too and say we need to investigate. It's you're not saying this is where it came from. It does, however, need to be investigated. And the scientists that they had on the 60 Minutes interview were hammering the same point here. It's not that you're saying that that it happened in the lab. You're not picking a side. You're saying that China needs to be investigated here, and they can't dictate what we get to see. Because if China tells you what you want to see, and then you report that in a report, you haven't reported anything, which is what the WHO seems to be prepared to do here. If the WHO reports exactly what China tells it to report, it is done as an institution in world politics and world public health. It is useless. I've already written an article saying we don't need to fund them anymore, and that's because it needs to be just fully reformed and stripped down. Every last single person needs to be fired in it. If the Biden administration does nothing here, that is going to be a very large tell that they have no backbone at all in dealing either with China or in these big organizations. And I am concerned that they're going to do nothing because that is the M.O. of the Biden administration. They talk a big game. They don't do a whole lot because they are slow to the punch on everything, from the border to this. On the pandemic, they're riding the coattails of Trump. On the border, they're hiding their heads. I'm not very optimistic in what they're going to do here because it's very clear that we need to deal with China and how they have overrun the WHO. And it's going to be very interesting what ends up being in this report. So I'm going to link to the 60 Minutes interview. I think you should watch it. It's going to take up about 15 minutes of your time, a little less than that, actually. But it is very good. I was sitting there wanting to throw something at the screen as I was listening to the WHO explain its, its, its position and just nodding in violent agreement with the guys who are questioning this. So I recommend it, and it's going to be linked in the notes, and I think you should check it out. In, fa- in fact, at one point, I was thinking of even doing a, a YouTube reaction video to this. I've never done a YouTube video. I would do a reaction video to this. I think it's, it's that important. So the other thing about this, the last thing, and we'll head into the line item segment, with 60, sixty minutes doing this kind of thing, that means that the theory that the lab, that this was released from the lab somehow, that is now a mainstream theory. It is not a conspiracy theory to say this because this is what is considered mainstream among official minds. So anybody who tells you that is debunked, you need to send them to this video and have them explain why they are agreeing with what the Chinese are saying in this case, particularly the Chinese Communist Party. Because if you're agreeing with them, you've got issues, and you need to get those fixed. So that's all for this week. The Light Outing segment is brought to you by the best story on the Internet for the last few weeks, and that is the boat that is stuck in the Suez Canal. Now, if you haven't been following it, there's a very large uh, boat or barge. I'm not quite sure which one it is, but it... In any event, it's, it's sideways and it's stuck in the Suez Canal, lodging itself into the walls of this canal, blocking all traffic coming in or out. And that has thrown a wrench in all global trade. I saw some estimates that said that it's costing the global economy $400 million a day. And we're talking weeks now where this thing has been going on now. As of the time I am recording this, I just got a few alerts that are saying that they have slightly dislodged this thing and that this may be coming to an end. I'm not really sure here. Some some are saying that the, like CNBC is saying that the ship has been refloated and is fine. The AP, the Associated Press, they're saying that it's, quote, partially refloated. So I don't know what any of that means. At all, I know nothing about ships. I just know that the memes on this have been incredible. And that's what I'm going to share with you today. And this is where the internet decided, well, you've got a black ship in a canal. You know what that's like? A traffic report. So a guy on the internet created a traffic report for this boat, which you're going to hear right now. Suez Canal traffic
1: report ever given, ever stuck in just south of the fresh food market on 23 Jewel. Nothing doing north or south. Let's head to the north. You can see Gaper delays real heavy here, especially as you get closer to Great Bitter Lake where everyone's just stuck and bitter themselves. Heading up to the north, nothing doing here too. Breaks uh, all the way up to the port Said. Same to the south too. Suez Golf looking pretty heavy. Nowhere going anywhere. And this extends all the way out to the Red Sea. Red Sea more like red brake lights for the, as far as the eye can see. Now your alternates as we zoom in out here and look to the south around the Ethiopian coast, booty nothing doing there we're gonna to have to go all the way around down south now your alternate madagascar you can go left or right both lanes are open all the way around cape horn now this will take you 10 days it'll certainly save you the five or six you'll be stuck there
0: <laughs> i deeply love that i've listened to that same report multiple times as I was sitting here recording, I just I was like, I had to listen to that again. I just love it so much. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to see, because it comes off Twitter, and the guy, he has a map up, and he's zooming in and out all over both the Middle East, the Red Sea, and he, he follows it all the way around the coast of Africa. It is just amazing and hilarious. So that is my favorite story so far, I think, almost of this year. I love that boat story. I love everything that's happened with it. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that we get a little more out of this, because it's been enjoyable to read these memes. As I was wrapping up this section of the show, and I always do this very last, uh, I got a breaking news alert from Associated Press, and they say, quote, a draft of the WHO China report attained by the AP says that the coronavirus likely spread from animals to humans, lab leak unlikely. So that tells me right now that they are covering for China. So I would highly, highly recommend you go watch that 60 Minutes interview. I may do more with that later on with clips of it. But right now, just based off that one alert, without digging any deeper into it and reading whatever the report says, given what I know, and I know the evidence that they had access to and the evidence that they had, the WHO is now covering for China on the spread of COVID-19. Because I know they have no evidence for the spread of animals to humans that came from farms and to food markets. I know they have about the same amount of evidence for this lab leak. So they have got nothing here, and they are covering for China. So on that note, I will leave you guys for this week. That is all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at dvonci. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. Make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out, share the show, so on and so forth. I hope you guys tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.